I don't know about you, but I'm really enjoying looking at celebration as a discipline. And I remember where I was when I first discovered the joy that there was a discipline I had got, which was celebration. I had never seen celebration as a discipline my whole life, and I was on a little leadership training thing, and they were listing the disciplines, and I was spiraling down, thinking, oh, I'm not very good at that one, and so on, as we do. And then he said, celebration. I thought, yes, I've got one. Uh, Now, it doesn't work as simply as that. We know that. But actually, there are some of us, by temperament, that in enjoy a good celebration and find it instinctive to mark things as we go through life, to celebrate, to party. And we are in good company if that's us because the Bible is very clear that Jesus came to party with people. He was called a glutton, he was called a drunk, he was criticised because of his love of partying and because of the people he chose to party with. And we're going to look at um, the New Testament. We're going to look a little bit later uh, than the stories of Jesus, although we will refer to them. And I've got one of the shortest readings you will come across, which you may be very pleased to hear, I don't know. But it's from 1 Thessalonians 5. It includes the, um, I think it's either the shortest or the second shortest verse in the Bible. Here we go. So this is 1 Thessalonians 5 and verses 16 to 18. Be joyful always. Pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So this is God's will that we rejoice. It's God's will that we celebrate. It's God's will, if you like, that we praise him and thank him. I read this uh, last week in preparation for this talk. I find joy every day, not because life is always good, but because God is. And I think that's where, as we start, and I know you've been looking at this for a couple of weeks now, but I think we can get a little bit confused when we think we've got to celebrate everything because life is really hard and there are some brutal things going on in many, many lives here where we think, well, how do I celebrate with that going on? But the call on us, as we heard a couple of weeks ago from Abby, is to actually celebrate God in the midst of all that, to celebrate the fact that he is good, even when we don't quite understand understand what it is uh, that he is doing. And I'm going to look a little bit at how we find this joy. How do we find this rejoicing? How do we mark the things of our life? And uh, this is a Dallas Dallas Willard quote that Abby used um, last time, but I thought it was worth repeating. Celebration means dwelling on the greatness of God as shown in his goodness to us. We enjoy ourselves, our life, our world in conjunction with our faith and in confidence in God's greatness, beauty, and goodness. And you'll see there, I put it against a Van Gogh painting. Van Gogh suffered with depression all of his life, but he painted a lot of yellow, a lot of gold, a lot of sunshine, because he found that was his way of rejoicing. That was his way, as a man of faith, of trying to actually say there is good, and there will be good again. Jesus was born into joy. His life, if you like, was framed with joy. And uh, we perhaps sometimes forget at Christmas, uh, just a couple of months ago, we celebrated the fact that, if you like, his life was heralded in with the angels declaring the joy that he would bring. I bring you good news of great joy, which shall come to all the people. His birth was announced in joy. 
And he was announced as someone who would bring good news, who would bring joy uh, to all the people. Jesus himself said, these things I've spoken to you that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full. I love that. That his heart for his followers as he was leaving them was that actually this joy that has sustained him, that took him to the cross uh, for the joy that was set before him, And actually, as he speaks to his disciples, he says, this same joy can be in you. I don't know how many, put your hand up if you learned the piano when you were a kid or a teenager. Okay, there's quite a lot of us. How many still play? Okay, not a bad ratio. I think it was slightly uh, different at Mosley. Very good. So, there's probably two-thirds of us that put our hand down as in we still play. So, I uh, faithfully did exams for years and years, going up to London, doing grade one, grade two, grade three. I stopped at grade five. I think everyone breathed a sigh of relief at that point. But I was doing it for the exams. My sister did it before me. We did the exams. And you would learn your piece. And it would be rondo in F or study in G. And they weren't party pieces, really. You know, you can't sort of say, gather around at New Year and I'm going to strike up with study in F or rondo in G. Because people would say, what the heck are you playing? And so my joy in piano playing, and I have to say my piano teacher's joy, I think really didn't really sustain us, shall we say, in that I was doing it out of duty. She was paid to listen to me um, and actually kind of went on a downward curve. And I don't play now or I occasionally uh, do that one for release that everyone does. But uh, other than that, I really have lost that gift. Maybe it's something for later, I don't know. But I think it was because I saw it as a duty, almost an academic thing, a study, something to get right, something when I played a wrong note, I'd failed. And it played into a lot of my sort of fears of failure growing up that actually made me just feel really awful. And I still, on a Wednesday, can think of what that feeling was like when at the end of school I'd get two buses to go to piano and that sort of dread um, that I felt. And I wonder sometimes, I tell that story, not because um, I want us to hear my piano playing, although you might want to hear that, um, but actually because I want us to think, has faith got a danger of becoming like that for us? Scared of tripping up, scared of getting it wrong, thinking it's a list of do's and don'ts, when Jesus says, my joy will be in you, that your life might be full that actually have we lost, I love that uh, phrase way back when where people say Jesus plays jazz. Because there's the sort of, there's the, the kind of high notes and the low notes of life. There's the minor key and the, the major key in it all. And we read in the book of Hebrews, also written by Paul, that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. There's an eternal joy to come. We're going to be celebrating that a little bit with Jill Adams and some of us gathering this afternoon. There is a joy set before us that is to come because of what we believe that Jesus has done for us. So we're called to rejoice in verse 16, to never stop praying Now, that can bring some guilt and duty into our hearts, can't it? We'll come back to that. And in everything, give thanks, verse 18. So let's look at the rejoicing bit, verse 16. J.R. Miller says this, It is supposed by some that religion makes people solemn. 
takes the sunshine out of their life, the joy out of their heart. But the reverse of this is the truth. No other one in the world has such secrets of joy as has the Christian. Christ teaches his followers to rejoice. And I love that because, I don't know about you, but I grew up looking at the church thinking, yeah, something's gone wrong there. They've, they've lost their joy, if you like. They've found their duty, but it all seemed to be rights and wrongs. And there seemed very little partying around, very little joy and celebration, which if you think, you know, celebration is very dear to my heart, I thought I estranged myself from church because I thought it's largely irrelevant to me. And yet, actually, Jesus brought the party on. And I think in our community groups, I think in our life groups, it's so important that we mark with celebration. It's God-given. It's one command I think we can keep. We don't have to spend loads of money. Our community group a couple of weeks ago danced. Uh, we, We did some dancing. I mean, I I wish there was footage of it because it would kill you. But honestly, it was so funny. And at the beginning, I thought, this is so awkward. And the visitor was there. I was just thinking, this is beyond awkward. By the end of it, I was loving it. And I said to this visitor, I said, it was so wrong, it was right. (laughs) And she said, that's absolutely true. That we didn't care by the end. And this was just a group of us um, being led in a dance. But I'd come in a really bad mood. I'd had a heavy day. And I just thought, I don't know if I can find it to see people and to, to be in community group. And by the end, we're dancing. And so actually, yes, the Pharisees criticized Jesus. They criticized him because they didn't understand the gospel. They criticized him because they said that actually he worked on the Sabbath, that he broke the rules, that he mixed with the wrong people. And I don't think the Pharisees were bad people. And I think they took their faith very seriously indeed. The problem, I think, for them was they took themselves too seriously within it. They got puffed up. And we can be no different to that. We can think that actually as Christians, we've got the moral high ground. We're about what we can't do and what we can do and waving the finger when actually, as we've been singing this morning, our faith is founded on grace, on mercy, on love, on forgiveness. So we rejoice as a discipline. We thank God as a discipline. And we never stop praying. And we can either look at this two ways, I think. We can either think pharisaically, oh my goodness, you know, it's not enough that I have my quiet time now. I've got to be praying all the time. I've got to be praying. But actually, this is about gratitude, I think. I think it's about a daily journey where we can send up. They don't have to be long prayers. They can just be, thank you for this. I love this quote from John Calvin. There is not one blade of grass, not one color in the world that is not intended to make us rejoice. In other words, if we look for it, we will find it. And if we pray continually, then our hearts will be lifted. And when Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica, he's trying to really say, here are some simple things to keep us living in trials. And if anyone could say that, Paul could. You know, if we look at his kind of biography of what he went through, shipwreck, imprisonment, illness, a thorn, which you're not quite sure what it was. But here's this guy who's been through so much, writing to the church in Thessalonica and say, praying all the time. Pray wherever you are, whenever you are. And there's a freedom to it rather than a duty. There's a sense of just thanking God, even as we drive along um, in, in his beauty 
and as we heard a couple of weeks ago, actually, how is it that God's creation seems to help us to worship and to celebrate because of how God has put it together? Uh, Here's a quote from Lewis Smedes, which I really like. Gratitude is the pleasure of hope come true. Hope is the pain of gratitude postponed. Gratitude comes easily on its own steam. Whenever we know that someone has given us a real gift, hope comes harder sometimes with our backs against the wall, laden with doubts that what we hope for will ever come. But gratitude always feels good, as close to joy as any feeling can get. Quite a lot to mull on there, but I I really like the way that it juxtaposes uh, all that we come across um, in our lives. I read this week, poverty exists not because we cannot feed the poor, but because we cannot satisfy the rich. And it landed on me, because I think there's something in gratitude that if we could find this, as Paul says, if we could rejoice, if we can give thanks in all circumstances, we become less self-obsessed. We become less grabby and keeping it all to ourselves. In fact, we take ourselves a little less seriously within it. Um, I don't know how many of you uh, love the film Chocolat. Some of you will, uh, like me, have enjoyed it immensely, uh, based on the novel by Joanne Harris. Maybe you've read the book. And uh, this is about a kind of puritanical French village with a very sort of Catholic regime within it. And uh, there's a mayor called Renaud who decides that they will live and abstain from all things chocolatey. Terrible regime, in my opinion. But there you go, that's what he thinks. And then this woman, Viviane, moves in to the village and what does she do horror of horrors she sets up an indulgent chocolate shop full of all this sort of richness that he so abhors and he opposes her at every level he longs to shut her down and the day before easter he goes in breaks into the chocolate shop to sabotage her easter she got all this chocolate ready for easter day and he breaks in and he goes in And actually, his joyless life, his arbitrary living, his faith that has no joy within it, that is about rights and wrong, leads to temptation, as it so often does. And he gorges on all this chocolate. He can't get enough of it, so much so that he's so sated on it that he falls asleep in the window of the chocolate shop the night before Easter. Can you imagine? The man who has stood for all puritanical, for everything that's abstemious, is face down in chocolate. I mean, there are worse ways to start Easter morning, but there we go. So there he is. There he is when Easter day comes. And the villagers are outraged. They're mocking him. They cannot believe him. And his underling, if you like, his curate or priest, has to suddenly give the Easter sermon. And there's a beautiful, very short sermon that he gives. And he says, see, I think that the gospel is really about how we love, how we include people. How do we bring people, if you like, into the party rather than exclude them and judge them? And I love that film for so many reasons. John Ortberg says that nothing gives into temptation like a joyless life. That we need this, we need this celebration to keep us on the straight and narrow. We need the joy that Paul the Apostle found and that he wanted to pass on. We need the joy that Jesus found and said he would put it within us, that he would put it within us. Um, Richard Foster, who's written brilliantly uh, about all the disciplines, but particularly about this one, I think, says, Joy, not grit, is the hallmark of holy obedience. 
We need to be light-hearted in what we do to avoid taking ourselves too seriously. It is a cheerful revolt against self and pride. Isn't that brilliant? I love that. Because I think what, what went wrong a bit for the Pharisees is the seriousness. Seriousness is not a fruit of the Spirit. I'll just say that again. Seriousness is not a fruit of the Spirit. But I grew up thinking it must be. And I think there are many of us here who felt the same, that we're not serious enough to be Christians, when actually joy is one of our hallmarks. Celebration, inclusion, love and joy, hallmarks of the Christian life. So it's difficult because we're called in verse 18 to give thanks in all circumstances. And as a pastor, I know, just even looking out now, that there's deep pain in many people here. But the encouragement in this, and we're, we're going to come to a, a close here, is that Paul says, in everything give thanks. Not give thanks for all circumstances, but in all circumstances. I really think there's a difference, and I dare to say our theology has at times got a bit skewed on this, because I think somehow, and I've read the books, I won't name the people, but I've read the books that say, thank him for the cancer, thank him for the depression, thank him for the loss of your loved one. I just think that's cruel. And I don't believe in a God that is in any way cruel. But thank him in it for the kindness you are shown. Thank him in it for the way that you are loved. We had a member of the congregation go through a horrendous trauma last Sunday evening. She'd come back to church after many months away. She'd come back, and that night she, she was held up. Their keys, their cars were stolen, everything. Absolute trauma. But when I rang her, she was in the chip shop. And if you know her, that won't surprise you. She loves uh, just celebrating. And she said, no, I'm not going to let them win. And she said, actually, the goodness of people has blown us away. And the conversation was as much about the neighbours that had blessed them as the horror of the situation. Not thanking God for evil. We do not celebrate evil. Let's be very clear on that. But we can celebrate the good that can come through even the toughest times. There will always be good people around us. There will all be kindness around us. And as we hear in, in other places in the New Testament, one of our goals is to overcome evil with good. We're going to watch a, a video now by Rend Collective as we come to an end. And this is a wonderful reminder um, that God longs to restore our wonder, that he wants us to party together because the childlike wonder that many of us had when we looked at his world, when we discovered faith perhaps for the first time, sometimes can ebb away a bit like my piano lessons and become duty rather than joy. But this is just a fantastic reminder by Rend Collective um, of the joy of celebration. I remember a few years ago sitting watching the sunrise. It was a typical misty Irish morning and there was a magical stillness in the air. Something happened that day that I didn't see coming. You see, I've grown up in church. 
I've been surrounded by the fact that Jesus loves me since I was born, but that day, something new flooded my soul. My eyes were opened, and I was totally overwhelmed by the reality of God, that I was not alone, lost in life, that, that I was not condemned, but that I was free. And <laughs> I don't know what happened, but this uncontrollable urge took over me. I jumped to my feet and started sprinting through the fields like a wild man, laughing and crying with pure joy. That was my first taste of the art of celebration. Since that day, I've learned that life has a way of draining that childlike wonder from us. Whether it's through our own failures or disappointments, whether it's suffering or betrayal, or even just familiarity, that's why we put up our defenses, isn't it? That's why we become numb. We pull back from life and become spectators because we're afraid of being hurt again. But the good news is, Jesus is always doing a new thing. He's not finished with us yet. We may doubt, we may feel like we are broken beyond repair, but He is the peace in our troubled sea. He is the healer of the brokenhearted. Recently, we made a theological breakthrough as a community, and it has changed everything about our approach. We realize that seriousness is not a fruit of the Spirit, but joy is. You see, there's an irrepressible laughter in the heart of God, and the whole universe cannot contain it. He is the one who invented celebrations and feasting and holidays. He is the one who sings and dances over us. When he suffered the cross, he did it for the joy set before him. And that joy was knowing that you and I would be fully free, no longer captive to our sin. Yes, the whole human story is described in terms of a celebration, the marriage of Christ to his bride, the church. Our God is the ultimate artist of celebration, the inventor of the party, and the healer of the broken. Now happiness is not the same thing as joy. Happiness is an emotion, a superficial response to pleasant circumstances, but joy is deeper. It's a spiritual discipline. We as people are much more inclined towards negativity and cynicism. We don't find it easy or even natural to pursue joy, and that's why God in His Word actually commands us to celebrate.
must wrestle for our blessing. We must fight for our joy. How do we then remind ourselves as a wounded church family that we still have a reason to sing? How do we move from the edges and fringes of the party into the center? Well, the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And to do that, we have to once again open up our hearts to wonder and beauty. I'm not saying to be fake or put on a false smile, but rather to always find a reason to rejoice, even if we're in the darkest circumstances. We come with a gospel worth celebrating before a celebrating king. And we think our response as worshippers should be obvious. We need to get down to the serious business of joy because the joy of the Lord is our strength. And after all, heaven's going to be the greatest party of all time and we need to start practicing now. So don't get caught up in your guilt or failure. You are forgiven, you are free, and you're worth more to God than you could ever imagine. So come on. With a childlike heart, wide-eyed with wonder, let's rediscover the art of celebration. It's brilliant, isn't it? It just, uh, for me, sews it all together beautifully and uh, in his gorgeous accent as well, says it a lot better than I could. Um, as we come to a close, I want to just finish with a, a story and then a reading and then I'll hand back to John. Some of you will know uh, Tony Campolo. You might not agree with all of his recent theology, but uh, he tells an amazing story of when he was on uh, business in Hawaii. I'm not sure what that was. Uh, he was working in Hawaii and he was jet-lagged. He couldn't sleep and he got up at three in the morning and was ravenously hungry. So he set out to see if there was a breakfast place open anywhere in the town. It was downtown. And he found just one place run by a guy called Harry, good name. And uh, he was running this, uh, this cafe, this breakfast all night cafe. And he went in there. And at about quarter past three in the morning, suddenly all the prostitutes from that area, it was a very red light area in Hawaii, came in for their kind of breakfast after they'd finished their shifts. And he was surrounded. He's a Christian speaker. He was surrounded by them. And he overheard one of them called Agnes saying that tomorrow would be her 39th birthday. And she said, I've never, ever had a party. And I've never celebrated my birthday. And some of the girls started to tease her a little bit that she would want a birthday and saying, well, what do you want, a cake? You know, we're, we're, we're as we are. And Tony heard this. And when the women left, he went up to Harry and he said, I'd like to do a party tomorrow for Agnes. And he said, I'll bring the bunting and the balloons and everything so when the ladies come in, we will celebrate. And Harry's wife appeared and said, I will make a brilliant cake for Agnes. And so the following night, uh, Harry went back there a little bit, sorry, Tony went back there a little bit earlier, met with Harry. They decorated the place out with balloons and this wonderful cake that actually had Agnes's name on it. Happy birthday, Agnes. Uh, the women came in, 
from their, their night of work, and there it was, this party for Agnes. And she cried and cried, held on to her cake, wouldn't even let them cut it because she wanted to take it home as it was because she was just so overwhelmed. And her legs nearly gave way just with the sheer joy of it, the sheer love behind that party. And at the end, Tony Campolo says that after Agnes had left, he le led the cafe in a time of praise and prayer. And Harry said, I didn't realize you were a church man. What kind of church do you belong to that does this? And he said, I belong to the church of Jesus Christ that throws parties in the middle of the night for prostitutes. Amen. Is that what we're belonging to? I hope you know what I mean by that. We belong to a church of grace, of mercy, of love, and the kind of love that makes people go weak at the knees because of the mercy of Christ.